So, read something from this edition of Bhagavad Gita. This is the fourth chapter. Krishna is describing in the fourth chapter knowledge, the fruit of selfless action, his mystic insight, knowledge. In the context of describing that, he mentions various types of persons who, by different approaches and orientations, attain the fruit of knowledge. Shutradin indriyani anye sam yamagnishu juvati shabdadin vishayan anya indriyagnishu juvati he says others, he's been describing, as I mentioned, different types of persons involved in Gyanayagya, that kind of sacrifice that produces wisdom. He says others offer the senses, such as the sense of hearing, into the fire of the controlled mind, while others, still, offer sound and the other sense objects themselves into the fire of the senses. So this is a rather abstract section of the of the Gita. <laughs> and um, the metaphor of the fire is being employed here, fire symbolizing sacrifice and making an offering into the fire of sacrifice. So he describes two types of people here, both of which are assembled this evening. Shutra dinindriyani anye samyam agnishudruvati. So the first type is the monks, the monastics, celibates, those types. He says that they offer the senses such as hearing, and hearing means it means all of the senses. It implies he's mentioning one, but by mentioning hearing he implies all of them. Hearing in particular is a very of course, prominent sense in the spiritual path. It's said that the that the Vaishnavas they see by hearing. So I've often mentioned it. I've questioned why we pay our respect to the deity of Krishna. You know the answer. Because the answer is one answer is because we've heard from the Vaishnav. This is this is Krishna. This is God. So. Where is Krishna? He's more in the heart, in the speech, in the words of the Vaishnav, than in the deity. So hearing, by hearing from the right source, Rikshit Maharaj was a great hearer, great listener. He listened with earnest, and the fruit of that listening was the speech of Shukadev, Srimad Bhagavatam. So hearing is important. Hearing is mentioned only for the sake of stressing the prominent sense in spiritual culture to indicate all the senses. So all of the senses, the monastics, it means here that they offer their senses into the metaphoric uh, fire of sacrifice. It's not that they're cutting the 
senses, often putting them in the fire. For that matter, the senses are situated in the subtle body, and these, what we see as ears and nose and eyes, these are only uh, uh, receptacles, so to speak, for the subtle senses that actually are the instruments of perception. So what does it mean? It means that, as I say metaphorically, they, the, the monastics, they're not involved in a classic sense with the objects of the senses as a worldly person must be a householder. Here we're gathered at the house and we've been invited for the housewarming. Um, so the householders are who, those who are mentioned next in this verse, in the second half of the verse. They offer sound, which corresponds with hearing, and it means, therefore, the other objects of the senses, which they are readily in touch with in a worldly context, as one has to be working and intermingling to some extent, uh, to a large extent, with, with the world for the sake of uh, one's circumstance, one's situation. One has to do so. So they offer the objects of the senses into the fire. This is the general idea. Whereas one sector will be relatively aloof from the sense objects. It's, of course, to be understood that the monk has to be in touch with sense objects to some extent as well in order to eat. So there's some allowance in the classic system, Vedic system, if you want to call it that. There's some allowance for the monk to be in touch with sense objects enough to maintain the body, just enough to maintain the body and uh, what's necessary for his or her spiritual practice. But then the, the householder, on the other hand, has, for his or her situation, they have to be much more in touch with sense objects, especially in relation to children, and, and there's working to maintain the household and so forth. So they can uh, acquire mystic insight, wisdom. And this, of course, is relative to, to bhakti proper. Bhakti Devi is, of course, very, very generous. So... Her generosity is such that she extends herself even to persons whose hearts are not pure. Whereas gyan, knowledge, will only go into a pure heart. At the same time, we know that gyan, knowledge, is concomitant to bhakti. Indeed, bhakti is the highest knowledge. Rajavidya, Rajakuyam, when Krishna speaks these words at the beginning of the ninth chapter, where the secret of the Bhagavad Gita is contained and first mentioned, he says, Rajavidya. Rajaguyam, what is he talking about when he says, Rajavidya, I'm going to give the highest knowledge? What is the subject of that chapter? Is bhakti, analoid bhakti. He concludes it by what? Saying what? He gives the conclusion of the whole Bhagavad Gita there in the final verse. In a very emotional pitch, he begins to speak about his devotees and he gets actually carried away at the end of the ninth chapter and he gives the conclusion early, a glimpse. So the point is, that, what, that bhakti is also knowledge, in as much as, in many ways we can speak about it, but in a general sense, we all know, in our material circumstances, with regard to love, when we love someone, then we know what to do. And it's only essential knowledge. 
no extras are required. All that extras are done away with. In love, we know what, just what to do. Some automatic knowledge is contained there, essential knowledge, not carrying any other baggage of information that will burden us, just essential knowledge. So love is pregnant with knowledge. We say, Narottam Thakur says that in his uh, Guru Vandanam, Prema Bhakti Jaha Hoyte Avidya Vinashayate. So if Prem Bhakti can do Avidya Vinash, destroy, Vinash means to destroy Avidya, ignorance, then it's implied that it has knowledge. So don't think, that we shouldn't think that this section on knowledge is in chapter 4 is, is not important, either any of the first six chapters. They're very important because Krishna takes us in a progression in the first six chapters of the Bhagavad Gita from dutiful religious life to actual spiritual practice in Nishkam Karma Yoga or acting in such a way that we become detached from the fruits of our action, mystic insight, coming in this chapter, the result of that. With mystic insight, then, having acted without attachment to the fruits of one's work, one gets a mystic insight, then one is in a position to, to do what? To actually uh, actively cultivate inner knowledge, mystic wisdom. So this fifth chapter, then, is about detachment from karma yoga to jnana yoga to karma sannyas, karma tyag. Krishna speaks in the third chapter about working in a particular way, the result of which is you get knowledge. In the fifth chapter he talks about not working. But that is a developmental stage. So one is in a position, having acquired mystic wisdom, which implies some purity of heart. We can actually sit in a detached way and enter into the mysteries of that knowledge. And of course, then that's followed by Dhyana Yoga in the sixth chapter, taking up the practice. And when we get through all these six chapters, we find that Krishna says, the best thing to do is to be my devotee. Devotional yoga, that is the best. But what is what he's teaching there is all the things that he has talked about thus far and all the developmental stages that he's talked about, the fruits of all of those different, apparently different practices are all contained within bhakti proper. So bhakti is generous in that she extends herself to unqualified persons whose hearts are not pure. But when those persons actually take up bhakti seriously, then in the context of culturing bhakti, they pass through the progression that's given in Bhagavad Gita. They become detached from the fruits of their work. They get mystic insight. At that point, they can actually sit in detached and do dhyana, meditation, so we should see that these things are coming within us in our culture of bhakti. Then, of course, in seventh chapter, he goes into the whole explanation of bhakti and the theology of the Bhagavad Gita. So mystic insight, we actually want that. That's desirable. Self-knowledge. We talked about this to some extent yesterday. Krishna begins the Bhagavad Gita formally instructing Arjuna as his guru by speaking about the foundation on which the high ideals that the Gita points in the direction of has to be built upon. Self-knowledge is the basic idea. So here he's talking about 
different people who acquire that in different ways, and so the householder is required to sacrifice the objects of the senses that he or her are in touch with into the fire of sacrifice. This is the idea. And uh, perhaps the supreme example of this is found in in the Rajalila of Damodar Krishna. We sang the Damodarastakam. As we started this thing, I thought, oh, I should have let my godbrother Srila sing the song because I was immediately reminded of many years ago when I visited the, the Brooklyn Temple, and it was during the month of Kartik. I was transported there to some extent. Radha standing in a dim light, empty temple. All the devotees had gone on Harinam, and Srila Prabhu had stayed back to sing the Dhammadarastakam for the deity, which was a regular affair. He sang so beautifully, and I was just visiting. I came in there, he was singing alone, playing the drum, Dhammadarastakam. And some Indian people had come, filtered in. So he, he asked me, why don't you give a class? I think I was a brahmachari at the time. So was he. Yeah. And uh, I said, well, there's nobody to give the class to. Because there were no devotees there. He said, well, what about these people? These Indian people there. I was instructed very nicely by him, is my point, that, at that time. So I should have deferred to him this evening. So Dhammadarastakam, we sang, and of course it's appropriate to sing in this month. And the Dhammadar Leela occurs at the, or at the end of the uh, Kartik month, Dhammadar month. Krishna gets his name from from this month and from this particular Leela, Dhammadar. It means to tie the belly, something like that, which Mother Yashoda attempted to do and, and ultimately was successful in doing. So she is the supreme example of a householder who's very attached, interestingly enough, to all of the household items. So there is a way in which we can be fully in touch with sense objects, as we must be in household life, but such that they themselves become more, if you will, important even than Krishna to us. This is the example of Vrindavan. It's very funny religion that we have because on the one hand we talk about detachment and householders should give up the hearth and home and enter the forest and renounce and be detached from their families and all such things. Really we don't teach that. We don't teach that householders should be like that. We teach that there's a stage of life (laughs) where that is practical and that's important. We should move in that direction. But we don't teach that householders should be detached from their families and from their children. No, they should take good care of their children. They should love their children and raise them properly. And this is, uh, of course, their, uh, the duty. The duty of the householder and the monastic is really the same. Taku Bhaktivinoda put it in a very nice poem. He said, Grihe tako, bone tako, sadahari bole dako. So as long as we remember the second half of the verse, we are fine. It says, Grihe tako, bane tako. Tako means to, to live. So if you live in a house, Grihe tako, or bon, bone. Bone means to live in the forest. So, I mean, whether you're a householder or a sannyasi, it doesn't make any difference. 
So I remember when I was a young man, I took sannyas for Prabhupada when I was 25, in 1975. And so then how we were charged as young sannyasis to go to the temples and preach. And Los Angeles was a huge household community, which I was, where I was born, so to speak. I was actually joined a mission in Santa Cruz, in the mountains in Santa Cruz, and after three months, then uh, they brought me to meet Prabhupada in Los Angeles. He had come there. So from th- that point, uh, and I was uh, married and my wife was pregnant, and so in those days, then Prabhupada wouldn't let the women travel after a certain stage of their pregnancy, so we were told we had to stay in Los Angeles. I had a little reputation at the time. I was good at uh, distributing Prabhupada's books. It just kind of came natural to me to talk to people about Krishna. So they kind of wanted to keep me there, as was, uh, I had heard later, but they used this ploy. And it was true. Prabhupada didn't like the ladies to travel after a certain point in their pregnancy, so they arranged for me to stay there. It was a big Grihasta community. So I kind of grew up there in uh, Krishna consciousness for a few years. I think I was there for two and a half years before I, my circumstance with regard to family life changed dramatically beyond my control and I was engaged in traveling and, and preaching. And uh, so then to come back to Los Angeles as a young sannyasi and I had to give a class to so many Krihastas and many of them were older devotees than, than myself who had joined before me. It was a little intimidating, actually, to be honest with you, because at the time in Los Angeles was the New Dwarka, Prophet called it, was like the, uh, well, they had a competition between New Dwarka and, and New York. I don't know what they called New York, I think they just called it New York. <laughs> Couldn't give it another name. Um, kind of a competition between the two temples who had the more learned scholars or the better preachers and that kind of thing. So Los Angeles was uh, full of folk. Yeah full of learned devotees, and and it was kind of a model in many ways for the rest of the mission. So to go there as a young man and give a class to older devotees as a sannyasi was a little intimidating. And You know, in those days, sometimes we used to preach strongly about renunciation, and sometimes after the classes, then the householders would form a posse, you know, to lynch the, you know, the sannyasi outside, you know. How can you preach so strongly like that about renunciation? I had a couple of experiences um, like that, but uh, it's important to preach about that, about renunciation, of course, because it's an important developmental stage, but uh, you have to do it thoughtfully and wisely. And as I say, householder's life is really not about, a householder shouldn't be told really to renounce. They should be told to, to involve themselves in their household life in such a way that they get the benefits of that life, which are tremendous, uh, because... There's nothing more central to a relationship between uh, two people than if it's to continue for any length of time, then sacrifice. Each party has to give up something, adjust their life, and there's nothing that spiritual life is more about at its foundation than sacrifice. Sacrifice is the foundation of love. So... uh, uh, really, the householders should be advised how to apply themselves in householder life fully. Yes, it's a passing phase, but it's a phase that should be participated in wholly. And 
the Vrindavan life is, is in a way an example of that. Now when we say that we have to be careful because this Brajalila is very, very high, very, very exalted in so many stages, as I've mentioned, we have to pass through to even come, we discussed last night, to even come to the stage, to approach the stage on which the drama of that Leela is performed. What is the stage on which the drama of Krishna Leela is performed? Bhagavad Gita brings us to that. That's called Sharanagati. Sharanagati. There's one kind of rasa in the teaching of Rupa Goswami. In secular theory, there are many different types of, of rasas that are articulated by the aestheticians. But Rupa Goswami, he's articulated one kind of rasa. It's called bhakti rasa. Bhakti rasa. And bhakti rasa has different flavors, different tastes. So, shantadasya, chakya, vatsalya, madhurdya are the primary tastes, flavors, colors of rasa. But it's one, and one means Mahaprabhu told the swarup of everyone to Sanatan. I mentioned last night, everyone wants to know their swarup. Mahaprabhu has given to everyone and through his shiksha to Sanatan Prabhu in Chaitanya Charitamrita, through the pen of Krishna Kaviraj. He says, Jivera swarup hoy Krishna Nityadasa. Surup of every jiva is das service. So this is the, the idea is this is the foundation. All of these expressions of love in Brajapakti are all service. Service is behind everything. When Sri Radha pushes herself forward and asserts herself, her position, pushes others out of the way, self asserting to the extreme. I'll take over here. The ego behind that is that she knows in this circumstance only I can satisfy Krishna. Such is my position. So the point is the ego behind that is one of service entirely to the extreme, although it looks the opposite. It looks self-asserting. It's really self-abnegation to the extreme. So this is foundational. Therefore, we are taught Tashi Krishna Namadi Nabavid Grahimindre Sevan Mukehi Jivado Sayamevas Puratyata. This seva, serving attitude, this has to be developed. And it's not hard. Everybody, if you stop and think for a moment, what is a servant? It's not hard to figure out because you can think, if I had a servant, if I had a slave, how I would engage them? It's not that you can think, oh, I'd do like this, I'd have that. We have to become like that. That's the hard part. It's not hard to think, to understand what it means to be a servant, really. But then to do that, that's much more difficult. So serving attitude. And we repose our serving attitude, our culture, in relation to the prominent manifestation of Krishna in our life. The charja, charja, mam vijaniyam, navamanyetakarichit the Guru Vaishnav, some menial service. We were discussing about Sri Bodhain Maharaj today, that his just uh, glorifying him in, in, a, in a small discussion, his good qualities. And I likened him to Ishwar Puri Pad Goswami, who so um, obediently <coughs> served Madhavendra Puri Pad in his old age, waiting on him hand and foot and Likely no time to study, but the, the vyagyan is a product of something other than study. 
spiritual knowledge. It's, uh, it's good to study if you have a mind for that, intelligence for that. We should apply it fully. But that is a product of grace, actual wisdom, realize, realization. So menial, even menial service has such, such value. And the more we move in the direction of serving attitude, then the higher we go in, in the, the ladder of Krishna consciousness. In material life, it's thought that we get ahead by stepping on the heads of others, asserting ourselves. And in spiritual life, we get ahead by having our heads stepped on by others, the Vaishnavas. Srila Maharaj told me it's, uh, Vaishnavism is uh, indirect. Vaishnav Das Anudas. He said, first there's Krishna, then there's the Vaishnav, then there's the Vaishnav Das, the servant of the Vaishnav, then there's Anudas, the servant of the, of the servant of the, and our position is fifth. Try to gravitate toward the fifth position, and you come in naturally to the foreground. So all these wonderful expressions of love and Brajalila where Krishna is being manipulated by these devotees, he's completely, the absolute is fully like, like, putty, like Play-Doh, in the hands of these sacrificers who have gone from, self-sac- from selfishness to self-sacrifice to self-forgetfulness, causing this kind of reciprocation from the Absolute, that the Absolute fully puts itself, himself, in their hands to do with as they like. It's as he likes, also, mm-hmm. as he likes. And so, as a, as a child, he appears as a friend. Who can they can wrestle with and defeat as a lover. And in this circle of the Brajlila, it's a very very high idea. So, if we talk about it as a way of thinking about our household life, we have to be a little careful, and we've been cautioned, not only about Rasalila, this is the this is a prominent example that's always given. We should be careful about discussing the Rasalila with unqualified people and so forth. But this Damodar Lila also, at least Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasri Thakur is emphasized in this way. And I, I, I knew a lady once and she went to an assembly of devotees, Satsanga, and in that assembly, it was a rather large assembly, there was considerable discussion about Krishna Lila. And uh, apparently a good a part of it in that particular time or day was discussion of the uh, childhood leelas of Krishna. And so she told me when she came back from that, I happened to run into her, and she said she had gone, it was very enlivening. And she said uh, that uh, the uh, the preacher was speaking all about Krishna's childhood leelas. And so she became so enthusiastic to, uh, to come home and uh, take care of her children. And we should take care of our children, but... Uh, I felt that she was misunderstanding a little bit about the, the Leela. I mean, in one sense, that is the purport of it on our level. You should take care of your children like Krishna, like Mother Yasoda loved, loved Krishna. That's true, we should. And I, I've mentioned that. Household business isn't renunciation. It's about taking care of family affairs in Krishna consciousness, of course. So if we just misconstrue the Leela of Krishna and Mother Jasoda and Nanda Baba and so forth, make it analogous entirely to our family situation, then there's a great loss there, a great loss. So we talk about it with some uh, trepidation or some, uh, uh, some preface material. It's a very high thing, very high. 
the kind of attachment that we find in the Brajlila that makes the whole world, in the language of Vishwanath Chakritakur, an abode of joy, Vishvam Purnam Sukhayate, such that the, that all of the sense objects become joyful. In another stage, they're very problematic for us, the sense objects. How to tame them in such a way uh, that they become friendly and joyful is to, of course, bring them into Krishna's service. Mm-hmm. So, this is what's going on in the extreme, we could say, in, in the Brajlila. If we want to be fully enter the world and fully embrace it for what it is, we have to step back from it first to see it for what it is. And in other words, attachment to something creates bias, a prejudice. If I'm too attached to someone or something, I can't really see it for what it is. You get too attached to an idea, and then even your good friends say, well, Maharaj, <laughs> it's not that good of an idea. There are problems with it. And you just can't hear it. You can only hear the good side. Yeah, this will work. And so this is the problem. So we are all attached to sense objects to one extent or another. And this is making it impossible for us to see the world for what it really is. So first we have to step back from it. So some objectivity has to be brought to bear. And that is what detachment is about. And the knowledge is concomitant to detachment. It enables us to see the world for what it really is. First, we see it as undesirable. It's a virtual terror zone. Hmm? But if we keep stepping back in a context of bhakti, which is wholly positive, it has this step back to go forward, is the idea. It's not like Ganmark, just step back, do nothing, observe, be peaceful. Shanti, shanti, shanti. No, it's a step back to launch forward in a big way and fully embrace the existence. Yukta-vairagyam, in the words of Rupa Goswami. So stepping back, seeing it for what it is, we see the negative side, but we also see what? We see it as the Shakti of Krishna. It's possible with that vision to fully enter the world and embrace everything. It means to see the whole world as an abode of joy. This is the vision of the Mahabhagata. There are no problems, only service. What we think is a problem is just a service opportunity. This is a very esoteric idea. Therefore, we generally the preachers don't talk about it too much. We talk more about step back. <laughs> step back from the world. See it for what it is. If there's undesirable elements. Uh, you're interacting with the sense object. Uh, sense object. You have a sense of self based on desire that's erroneous, and, and so on. But the full reach of Krishna consciousness, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, is to fully embrace the world. And so that Brajlila exemplifies that in one sense. There we have a full embrace of the world. In other words, our ideal in the Brajlila are all these people that are attached to their homes to their place of residence, to the families, to the cows. Even Krishna ostensibly left Vrindavan. It appears that he left Vrindavan to go to Mathura and from there to Dwaraka. 
but the Rajbasis didn't leave. They stayed there, attached to the hearth and home. When Krishna showed himself to be very wonderful in their presence, when they had gone, they made a little pilgrimage to uh, worship the goddess Ambika. And uh, this was during the Ekadasi, maybe Mahadvadasi or Ekadasi, uh, that Nanda Maharaj had taken water at a particular time or bathed at a particular time and the agents of Varuna, the waters, they came and captured him for an infraction, what they considered to be an infraction. Under scrutiny, we find there's no infraction on the part of Nanda Maharaj. But anyway, they took him down and there he was imprisoned beneath the surface of the river. And uh, Krishna went down and saved him. And Varuna had the darshan of Krishna and he said, Om Namo Bhagavate Paramatmane Bhagavan, something like this, he said. He said, oh, I offer my obeisances to you who are Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. This is mentioned in the Bhagavatam. Vedanti tat tattvavidas tattvam yat jnanam advayam brahmiti paramatmiti bhagavani tishabhate. It's a foundational verse for the whole of Bhagavatam. The whole tattva philosophy of the Bhagavatam is based on this verse. It says the absolute is, the reality is non-dual consciousness appearing variously as Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. But how do we know that Krishna is that person? Krishna is that non-dual reality. That comes in this chapter, in this Leela, when Varuna says it. He identifies him. Oh, Namo Bhagavate Paramatmane Brahmane Tubyam Namaste. <laughs> he says... Krishna's two Bhagavans, I am. So, when he did this wonderful act, and, the, and Varuna's paying obeisances to him, Nanda was released, then Nanda Marsh told everybody about how wonderful Krishna was, and of course they generally thought that the wonderful things that Krishna did were all a result of the... Where they were just in conformity with the prediction of Gargacharya, Gargamuni, who said... This son will be like Narayan. He will do wonderful things like Narayana. So whenever wonderful things were done, they thought, well, Gargamuni said it. Narayan will do wonderful things through him. But they never really thought of him being anything other than their friend, their son, their lover. This is the power of that Prajapakti, that it suppresses knowledge. But knowledge is there. Uh, just like in this country, we have the largest military-industrial complex. So previous to the recent terrorist attacks, although we have a greater military arsenal than any country, you don't see it anywhere. And if you go through European airport, you can see guys with machine guns and army fatigues and so forth. But you don't see that in the United States, although they have more of those machine guns and rockets and, and anywhere. In Russia, they used to parade little missiles through the streets to show their arsenal, their power, their Aishwarya to the country to secure them. But they never have those kind of parades in the United States. Because all of that show of power inhibits the freedom of living comfortably and peacefully and interacting happily. But at the same time, that peaceful and happy interaction can't be there unless that arsenal is also there, the nature of the world being what it is. But if for some reason, like in this instance, with the terrorist attack, 
there's a need to show those missiles, and they come out from everywhere. They're everywhere. And there's jeeps and army people at the Golden Gate Bridge <laughs> guarding and so forth. So similarly in Vrindavan, in Raj, there's no need for knowledge. It's all suppressed. Simply loving Krishna. But when people from Vrindavan, the Braj Lila, they come here, like Shirup, Sanatan, Raghunath Das Goswami, Jeev Goswami, they're just young maidens, cowherd maidens. They have no, apparently no education. They come here and that nana shastra vicharani kunipanosat dharma samstapako lokanamita karanotiku vanema nyosharanyakaro. They had such oceanic knowledge. The writings of the, uh, particularly Jiva Goswami, so much knowledge he had. It's mind-boggling. I remember I used to read Prabhupada's books and think, where does he get all this stuff, all these quotes from so many obscure books? And they used to really uh, amaze me. He appeared so simple and happy, and but so much, so small, so short, <laughs> so big with such, such knowledge and power if he needed to to show it. So this is the Rajlila is like this. The knowledge is there. You have to pass through so many planes to come to that. To the point where knowledge itself, spiritual knowledge, is suppressed by the power of your love for God. It's inconceivable. And God becomes stripped of his own knowledge that he's God. That's Krishna. Otherwise, it's not that Krishna is playing the role that he's the son of Mother Yasoda and thinking, I'm God, and I'm playing this role for my devotee because she loves me in this way. No, he is the son of Mother Yashoda that we have to understand. That's who he is. <laughs> Narayan is a god. Krishna is the son of Yashoda. When Balabacharya asked Mahaprabhu, I want to hear something from you about Krishna Nam, what did he say? I know nothing about Krishna Nam, only this. He's suckling the breast of Mother Yashoda. He's Shamsundar. That is Krishna Nam. So this power of this love strips Krishna of his own uh, godhood, so to speak. It's still there. It doesn't go away, but it's suppressed. If it should manifest by some outside influence, like a demon comes into Vrindavan, from outside, the cause for that to manifest comes. And it intensifies those devotees' love for him. It serves to, as a udipana, Vibhav, to accent, to augment their dominant sentiment of love. It can't get in the way of it. So these uh, devotees, Nanda Baba asked Krishna, well, this is, uh, he, he told him, he's done a wonderful thing. There I was at the bottom of the sea and uh, Krishna came and the Varun is offering him obeisances and so forth. He's got some power. He's got some mystic power by the grace of Narayana. He's just our son, but by the grace of Narayana he's got this mystic power. So let's what does everybody want to know? More than anything else, what does everybody want to know? What's going to happen next? What's my future? Where will I go in my next life? So they all got around and they asked Krishna, where are we going to go in our next life? Maybe you know. <laughs> Asking their young son. And Krishna showed them. And what did he show them? He showed them Golok. He took them to the, I think I was the Akuragat, 
for bathing, I showed them Golok, and they were very happy. Oh, is everything going to be the same? <laughs> Nanda Baba thinking, Yashoda Mai, she will be there. Yes, Ram and Rohini. And Yashoda Mai thinking, Nanda Baba will be there, Govardhan will be there, Jamuna, our house, everything. Hmm? Everything same. Everything same, but a little bit more opulent. A little bit palatial. Because there's the Devalila. This is the Naralila. Naralila means human-like, and Devalila means godly. So the katometries are a little bigger there, larger. There's some more, slightly more Aishwarya. That's why there's Gokulila. Naralila is more sweet, because Krishna is more accessible, more human-like, more fallen in love, more taken. It's like if you film the, the film on location, it has greater value. So when the Leela is played out in the, on this plane, the human-like Leela, the Leela of love, all avatars of Krishna are motivated by love, but Krishna's Leela is the enactment of love itself in purity. So it's played out most perfectly in human society. So anyway, they saw, they thought, oh, we'll go there. It's going to be just like here. Everything's going to be there. It's going to be like with golden, golden palaces and... Uh, Still, we're in the forest, but this kind of thing they're thinking. So the point is that they're attached to themselves, to their situation, just like ordinary people whom we instruct you. This is a problem. It shouldn't be. This is the cause of your pain, your suffering, attachment. Attachment brings sorrow because the nature of things in this world is that they're, they've got an agenda. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. Everything's moving and everything in flux. So... The more we're attached to something, the more trouble it's going to be for us, even if it does give us happiness, because it's going to be gone at some point. And then how painful that will be for us. So, we teach like this, but then this is our ideal. These French people. And they're all attached to their families and friends and, and so forth. So we have to understand it properly. We should draw from it in a general sense, as I'm mentioning, that we, in our household life, should be dutiful to our household life and try to gain from it what it has to offer. It really offers us a chance to make, to be a sacrificer. So try to look for that because that's central to the, any relationship. It's not that we marry someone and we may have had this problem. So that's understandable given the society we live in, but we marry someone by force of infatuation. And, uh, after a while, what do they say? magic's gone. And so then you go somewhere else because you didn't stop to think that, well, that's only magic and it will come somewhere else and it will go also. It will come somewhere else and it will go. So when the magic's gone, it's not that you go somewhere else. Then it's when you go deeper and you realize, well, that was only magic. Infatuation. My relationship with this person should be based on something deeper than that. I have a godbrother who's, who's um, I've known for several years, and he's a very kind of, uh, has a, a coarse exterior, quite a coarse exterior. And um, he always seems to pop into my life just out of the blue. And uh, he came up to Audarya recently, just out of the blue, and he had uh, married a lady, and um, he introduced me to her, and we chatted, and and they invited me down to their place in uh, somewhere here in the, in the Bay Area, south on the peninsula. And um, anyway, I was talking with his wife, and I, I always uh, wanted to understand something a little more about this fellow who was, like I say, very kind of like 
rough on the outside. And then she spoke to me, and I said, well, how long have you been with Maharati? Some of you may know him. And you can appreciate How long have you been with Maharati? She said, well, about two years. And she could tell, like, I was kind of thinking, like, well, that's a long time to be with Maharati. <laughs> He's a great guy, but gosh, something like that. And then she said, he's really sweet. And then I just really wanted to hear everything she said because I knew here's a person that really knew him as he is. And, and everybody has something wonderful and like, very endearing and likable, uh, lovable about them. And I knew that she had found that, that everything lovable about him. And so I, I wanted to drink that and, and know that about him. It's not that I didn't like him. I always do like him, but sometimes he's, uh, he's a little, like I say, a little coarse on the outside, hard to penetrate. And, and I realized, oh, what a valuable situation I'm in. I'm in presence of another human being who knows the inside of this person.